All right, good morning, church. Welcome back to week three of our series, We Need a King. Uh, if you're just joining us this morning, we're looking at the life of David as told in the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel. Now, now, if you were with us last week, you know, we zeroed in on that famous David and Goliath story. Uh, today, we're going to look at the aftermath of that story in First Samuel chapters 18 through uh, 20. Uh, if you, if you're familiar with the story, you know these chapters tell the, about the close relationship that, uh, David had with Saul's son, Jonathan. And while circumstances didn't allow that relationship to flourish very long, um, cause eventually Jonathan dies in battle next to his father at the end of 1 Samuel, we do learn that David and Jonathan's relationship was so strong that David even offers this eulogy in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Look at this. This is how David remembers Jonathan. He says, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary. So despite their short time together, this is what David says about Jonathan after he dies. And my question this morning for you is, what will people say when you die? What will people say when you die? Picture your funeral right now. Let's do an exercise. Who is there? Who is weeping? Who is most deeply affected by your passing? At every funeral, somebody gets up to speak. Words are offered. What story will your life tell? And who will tell about it when you're gone? Just imagine that right now. Now, for many of us, that, that's an intimidating exercise because it exposes our influence or our lack of influence uh, that we've had in the lives of others. Would you receive a similar eulogy that David gave Jonathan from those you love? David and Jonathan had, had, had a deep, vulnerable, mutually influential relationship that David uses that word distressed which begs an examination of Jonathan's life and actions. And so in today's message, what I want to show you is how to become a person who receives a eulogy like Jonathan. And I think that requires two opposing actions. First, you have to develop deep influence. Develop deep influence. And then second, um, you have to shun sabotaging relationships. Now, the people who develop deep influence, you know those type of people. Those are the people who are mentioned at key moments in life, like when you get baptized, uh, when you receive an award, when you get married. It's those moments that certain names are brought up. And then on the flip side, when we talk about sabotaging relationships, the reality is your influence can, can negatively affect people if you engage in destructive behavior. That will change how people remember you. And we'll see an example of that in our story today. What will people say about you when you die? Will you receive a eulogy of deep, positive influence? Now, 1 Samuel 18 to 20 tells the story again of David and Jonathan, but it is set in a complicated context of family drama and political ambition. And yet, we'll see that Jonathan rises above the fray, which can be difficult because has anybody in this room ever experienced family drama? Right. I know nobody in this room has ever experienced that. Yes, family has a way of drawing out certain feelings within us, especially those we haven't seen in a while. Is anybody tired of watching people's political ambitions? Yeah, there is an election coming up. Just watch the ads. 
This is the backdrop of David and Jonathan's relationship. And immediately following the David and Goliath story, we read this in chapter 18. As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, that's David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. In other words, David and Jonathan were BFFs. David was the brother that Jonathan did not have. In fact, in today's age, it's it's probably worthy of note that this verse does not imply a kind of sexual relationship. Rather, the word loved primarily refers to devotion and allegiance. And so the point the author's making right here up front and will illustrate throughout the narrative is that Jonathan's loyalty is more enduring. It means more to David and is, 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 is... stronger than even the romantic love that David might feel from a woman. This is crucial to recognize as there's a political struggle going on in their family that consumes them. In fact, Jonathan even takes a symbolic action in verse 3. It says this, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. He gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So Jonathan not only makes a covenant, an agreement, an oath with David, he gives him a gift to solidify it. And that word robe, which I highlighted there, you can circle in your Bibles or highlight in your Bibles, usually denotes the royal robe worn by the crown prince. So by giving David his robe, along with his warrior's garment, his bow, his sword, his belt, Jonathan is indicating his willingness to relinquish his position as heir to the throne and pledge his loyalty to David. And this early moment right here lays a key foundation for the rest of the story. And while their relationship is tested and tried, it's Jonathan who consistently chooses allegiance over ambition. And his eulogy is evidence of that character. What will people say when you die? If you want a eulogy of influence, you have to become a person who lives out the principles found in the 1 Samuel 18 to 20 narrative arc. And those principles are simply this. You have to crush jealousy. You have to trust God's protection. And then you have to submit to God's authority in all areas of your life. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us today. Heavenly Father, I come before you. I pray for my friends who are here today, who are listening to this now or later on, um, all those who are under the sound of my voice, and I pray for the preacher, myself as well, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would change us, that you would craft us, that you would make us more like you, and that ultimately you would get us to a place where we would submit ourselves to you, King Jesus, our true King. Bring us to that place this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so first, let's, let's talk about jealousy, okay? Let's talk about uh, jealousy. If you want to, and I, I would venture to think, if you want to develop deep, lasting, influential relationships, you have to crush jealousy. You have to just, you've got to smash it. You've got to kill jealousy, or it will kill you. Now, jealousy very quickly takes us down a very, a very dark path of relational destruction. And, and you know this implicitly. You have to beware jealousy. And yet everybody experiences it. Um, I, if you, if you don't, and, and if you don't believe me, I, I did a quick Google search this week on music and jealousy. And I found that uh, John Lennon, 
uh, Blake Shelton, opposite ends here, uh, Weezer, if you're a Weezer fan back in the day, Pink Floyd, Queen, and even the Queen Bee herself, Beyonce, they all have songs about, you guessed it, jealousy. Jealousy. Jealousy can kill your relationships. It can destroy your soul. And King Saul is a prime example of this. Jealousy captures him, ironically, with a song. And so after David kills Goliath and begins mounting military expeditions, the women of Israel come out to to celebrate what has happened. They come out from all the cities and they start singing. We read this in in verse 6. It says, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the, the women came out of all the cities of Israel. They were singing. They were dancing. There was hooting. There was a big party going on. They came out to meet King Saul. They came out with tambourines. I should have told John to have some tambourines in the songs today so we could have experienced that. They're singing songs of joy with musical instruments, and this is what they sing. Listen. It says, the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Victory is in the land. The people want to celebrate in song. Now, truthfully, this was a common form of parallelism in ancient poetry, if you know about it. Uh, the numbers were not meant to be literal, literal. The intention was to simply convey it was a large number, not to say that David was greater than uh, Saul. Uh, but yet, Saul doesn't take it that way. Look at verse 8. It says, Saul was very angry, and this saying, which was supposed to be celebratory, it displeased him. So jealousy has already infected the camp. Saul is irritated. He's graded by the fact that, forget about the numbers, David's name is mentioned alongside his, the king. Their relationship was doomed from the start because Saul did not want to share glory. And I just want to point out that this is how jealousy begins. It creeps up on us, unbeknownst to us. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe you've been a leader for years, right? You thought you've been an influential leader for years, but now everybody's talking about that young, talented, charismatic uh, newcomer, the the hot thing on the block. Perhaps a close friend is spending time with somebody else. You thought you were so close, you you shared secrets, and now they're spending more time with that other friend. Maybe maybe people are commenting on somebody else's appearance on social media, uh, their success, their outfit, their, their, their weight loss, their hairstyle, whatever it is. But it seems like nobody recognizes you. Or maybe, just maybe, and, and this is kind of counterintuitive, maybe, maybe you're walking through a hardship. Uh, maybe you, uh, you really want to have kids, but you can't. Or you really want to get married, but you haven't found that person or or you were just diagnosed with an illness and you look around at everybody else and you say my life is so hard and yet everybody else's life seems so good and you start to become envious and if you're not careful those feelings can can take us to dark places of despair and anger and isolation and 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 the, and the question is initially how do we cope with that well, we cope with it by saying, you know what, it's, it's not a big deal. I, I'm fine, right? But there's this feeling in your body. What is that all about? Because you see, jealousy begins viscerally. 
Jealousy is a hot feeling in your chest. You, you think that you deserve the glory. You deserve the attention. But somebody else is getting it. And, and whatever that feeling is, you know you don't like it. In fact, if you notice in verse 6, it says the women came out to meet who? They came out to meet King Saul. And he was expecting that there to be a song solely about him. But what did he hear? He hears David's name, that son of Jesse, as he'll call him later on, spoken of in even greater esteem than his. Now, if you put yourself in that position, what, what feeling would that provoke in your heart if you were Saul? Because once you get that hot feeling, your antennas start to go up. You feel threatened, which very quickly leads to anger, and it can then dominate your thoughts. In fact, look at, look at Saul. Verse 9, it says, Saul eyed David from that day on. And that word eyed conveys that this was born out of jealousy, the jealous eye. Right? It starts affecting his actions. In fact, in verses 10 and 11, we read that Saul is once again tormented by this harmful spirit, and he hurls a spear at David, the first of, of several times that Saul just throws a spear. This guy always has a spear in his hand, you're going to see. Which, which I, I got to say, I, I was reading this again, it just seems so weird to me that David keeps staying, because I, fair warning, if I come to your house, you invite me over for dinner, I'm playing the guitar or whatever, and you just pick up a weapon and hurl it at me, I'm probably not coming back to your house the next day. Just, I'm just saying. And the only explanation I can think of is that David and Jonathan, they, they at some level thought that Saul was not in his right mind. And truthfully, that is what jealousy can do to you. Where does it come from? Jealousy is born out of fear. Fear drives our jealousy, fear of losing influence, fear of losing relevance, fear of losing a relationship, fear of being found out as being inadequate, right? There is an insecure lining in all of our hearts. Look at Saul. It says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and he had departed from Saul. Now notice this, Saul was not afraid because of David's success necessarily, He was afraid because it was evidence that the Lord was with him, which meant conversely that the Lord was not with Saul. And if you remember back in chapter 15, Samuel told Saul his kingdom was going to be ripped out of his hands. And in this moment, those words must have come rushing back into Saul's mind. He's about to lose his kingdom, his influence, his power. He recognizes David's abilities, but he doesn't want to give up that power, that influence. And when you get it, it's really hard to give it up. Where is it going to lead him? Jealousy is destructive and we need to crush it. Because if you consider its path, think about how it infects us. It's like a virus, right? It it begins viscerally with that hot feeling in your chest, but then we brush it off. We think, you know what, it's not a big deal. But, But then it spreads and this fear starts to take over our minds. It doesn't stay contained and eventually jealousy influences our actions, And that's exactly what happens with Saul. So as the narrative continues, we read a really interesting scene in verses 17 to 30. I'm just going to summarize it for the sake of, most of it for the sake of time. But uh, feel free to go back and read it, and uh, you can can email me your questions. Um, If you remember, in chapter 17, Saul offered a reward to the person who could kill Goliath. And part of that reward was marriage to his daughter. 
Saul had more than one daughter. The oldest, was, uh, the oldest name was Mirab. And so first, uh, he gives, offers her to David, but David refuses because he thinks he's not worthy of being Saul's son-in-law. And so she goes and marries somebody else. Well, it just so happens that Saul has another daughter, a younger daughter named Michael, and David has caught her eye. She says, I want that one. You know, his fame, he's good look, he's ruddy, you know, whatever. Uh, I want to marry that guy. And it seems like David felt the same way. And so this is where the jealous actions come into play. Look at verse 20. It says, now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And he says, that's great. He's, somebody's going to marry my daughter, right? It pleased Saul. Now, why did it please Saul? Next verse, verse 21. It says, Saul thought, let me give her to him that... <laughs> Not that she may bless him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Man, what a great way to start a relationship. (laughs) It's clear that Saul's motives are not pure. He's not thinking, man, what a fine, upstanding Boy Scout that my gentleman, my daughter is going to marry. I'm so blessed. No, 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 no. No, he's thinking the exact opposite. He's using his daughter as a way to manipulate the situation so that David would die and get out of the way. And here's Saul's plan. In the ancient Near East, there was something called a bride price. And that was required if you were marrying a woman. Basically, he had to pay her father, which was a common practice. Now, Saul suggests the, 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 the price. He says, uh, David, how about you go out and uh, how about you kill 100 Philistines and bring back some of their body parts? And I'll let you go read those verses and see what those body parts were. Uh, This was a common practice in ancient Near Eastern uh, thinking. Saul um, brings this up to David, and he's thinking that David's going to surely die in battle, okay? And David, for his part, David loves the idea. He's like, yes, I hate Philistines. I'll go kill them. And so he goes out. He kills not 100. He kills 200 and brings back twice the reward asked of him. The Lord grants him success. The Lord is with him. And the jealousy Saul felt now turns to hatred in his heart. Look at verse 27. It says, And Saul gave his daughter Michael for a wife. And when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, she was, he was, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. The Lord is with David and think about the dynamics here. His daughter loves him. People are, people are singing songs about him. Saul is jealous. And so chapter 18 ends setting the stage for the family drama that's going to occur in, in the following chapters. And what we're going to see is that Saul, uh, David's now father-in-law, who should have been a mentor to him, is so threatened by David that he's going to become obsessed with killing him, with taking him out. And I want you to notice how it began. One unexpected day with a song and a hot feeling of jealousy in his heart. And that sealed Saul's fate and led to a life of sabotaged relationships. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, Saul is also mentioned in that eulogy, but I imagine it's with mixed emotions. And, and we've, listen, we've all been to that kind of funeral, right? You, you go to a funeral, and during the eulogy, uh, somebody offers words like this. Well, you know, he was my father, uh, but he, his life was complicated. 
right? Or, or you go and, and somebody says, she was my best friend, but she didn't always make the best choices, and eh, she had fun. What will people say when you die? Because if you don't crush jealousy, the collateral damage it produces will become your life story. And if you want to receive a eulogy like Jonathan, you have to develop deep influence. You have to shun sabotaging relationships. Now, Saul didn't live like that. His jealousy sabotaged his family, his kingdom. And so it's, worthy to, it's a worthy exercise to ask, am I like Saul in any way? Am I like Saul? Has jealousy altered my actions and damaged my relationships? Now, truthfully, as I get older, I find it easier to look at other people and become jealous. And, and it's, a, it's a universal thing. Like, you're in middle school, you're high school, you're jealous of people in different ways. But as you get older, you start looking around and you see, well, that person has more money than I do. Uh, that person is further along in their career. That person has a more perfect family than me. Jealousy is right around the corner. And what's interesting about this story is the reactions of Saul and Jonathan, because David was God's anointed king, and yet Saul and Jonathan had two very different reactions to him. Saul refuses to relinquish power. Jonathan actively surrenders his power at the beginning. And this plays out over the next two chapters. Are you like Saul, or do you have a humble, self-giving spirit like Jonathan? Because the reality is, if anybody should have been jealous of David, it was Jonathan, right? And yet he rose above the drama by crushing jealousy. He put allegiance to his God over ambition. But challenges will always come. And so secondly, if you want to rise above that family drama, uh, we need to become people who trust God's protection, And so as we move into chapter 19 of the narrative, we're going to see in full force the family drama and the political ambition play themselves out. So David is now a member of the royal family. Saul is threatened by him. And Jonathan, uh, he's he's going to come into focus because he's right in the middle, right? Have you ever been there? You've been right in the middle of a family feud? Oh, man, that's a tough place to be. When these situations arise, it's important to surround yourself with people who also trust God's protection. And so the Lord is with David, as we're going to see. Um, God's will is going to get carried out, and yet the plot thickens. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. It says, and Saul spoke to Jonathan. He gets all his servants together. He gets Jonathan together, and he says, we got to kill David. But Jonathan is like, hold up a second. He delighted much in David, it says. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place. Hide yourself. And I'm going to go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Like, David, I got your back. And, And so in these first few verses, we learn Saul's motives, and we learn Jonathan's heart. Now, now what's interesting about Saul's motives as we go along here, I think you're going to see, is that Saul's motives may, be, may, be, may have been more focused on Jonathan than himself. Because remember, Jonathan is next in line to the throne. Jonathan is Saul's son. And if David takes over, Jonathan may get pushed out. And it was also common practice in, in that culture to kill all your political enemies. So Jonathan might be dead. And so, and so Saul's thinking, we've got to do something about this. He's making the case for getting rid of, of David. 
And so now Jonathan has a choice. His choice is, will, will he follow God's will or give in to the world's ways? Because Saul right here is arguing like a shrewd political operative, one of those guys you know, behind the scenes. It just makes sense to kill David, he says. Now, note, dads, just, I got to say, it, it, if you want to be a person of influence, it's not the greatest idea to plot the murder of your son-in-law right after they get married. Okay, just going to put that out there. Jonathan's caught in the middle. As I was reading this this week, I, I started to personalize the story. Um, not the part where he's killing his son-in-law, but um, I have a prayer that I pray for my kids every day. And the prayer is this. Lord, I pray that Jenna and Josiah and Zoe would always choose you and not the world. Choose God, not the world. And I think that's a prayer that every parent should pray. Because today the messages are so enticing. Uh, they focus on selfish ambition. I mean, what are the appeals of the world? Right? Follow your heart. Right? You be you. Live out your truth. And, and those are recipes for choosing the world's ways. Because our hearts, our hearts are fickle. Instead, we need to teach and model for our children what it looks like to choose God's way in a complicated world. In fact, that's the heart behind the words of the New Testament author James. He writes this in chapter 3 of his letter. He talks about two different kinds of wisdom. The wisdom um, not from God and the wisdom from God. He says the wisdom uh, that is not from above, what is that symbolized as? it's, It's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where, listen, where jealousy... And selfish ambition exists. What happens? There's disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above, the wisdom that comes from God, what is that? That's pure. That's peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy. It has good fruits. It's impartial. It's sincere. So he's saying here, if you choose God's wisdom, you're going to see the fruit. And if you choose the world's wisdom, well... You're going to see the fruit. It's right there. Choose God, not the world. Now, what is Saul teaching his son right here? Jonathan has a choice. And for the rest of the chapter, we're going to see that when people choose God, he's going to provide protection that we need. In fact, in chapter 19, David survives not one, not two, but three murder plots. And God uses three different people in three different ways to provide protection. So first, there's Jonathan, right? Verses 4 to 7, we see his speech. Jonathan is a good, loyal, noble friend who pleads David's case. I mean, read that and ask yourself, would I do this for my brother-in-law? Jonathan says, David hasn't sinned against you, Saul. Uh, He's killed Goliath. He's brought you fame. The Lord is using him. And for a time, Saul relents, and David is welcomed back, and there's reconciliation. But then we read this in verse 8. It says, there was war again. And what happens? David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And he, as he sat in his house, he's got a second. This guy's always got a spear in his hand. He's always ready. But there's war again, and, and you know what that means. It means that David is going to go out to battle, and yet Saul stays home. There's always a problem when the king's at home, when there's war going on. And David got all the accolades. More than that, Saul's now being tormented again by the spirit from the Lord, which you might read that and think it, it's kind of weird, um, but th- 
what's going on here in the narrative in the narrative is basically the author is communicating that there is judgment coming against Saul for not following God's commands. The spirit's presence is meant to indicate that God's favor has left Saul and is now with David. And so Saul, for a second time, picks up that spear, throws it at David. And David's like, uh, okay, this is, this is getting serious. And so he escapes, but then we learn he's not even safe in his home. Saul sends assassins to David's house to kill him in the morning when he wakes up. And so that's the second murder plot. And, and God uses David's wife now, uh, Michael, uh, to protect David. And instead of advocating for David like Jonathan did, she basically helps him escape, and then she, she, she you know, puts something in their bed to, to, uh, uh, to distract the, uh, Saul's men, and then she lies to Saul. And then David goes, thirdly, to Samuel the prophet and asks for help. And through Samuel, we see the Lord, the power of the Lord on display. Look at verse 20. It says, Then Saul sent messengers to take David. He's, ch- he's chasing him down. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. So Saul hears about this and he says, this can't be. So he personally goes after David and the same thing happens to Saul. He, he starts prophesying the power of God, God's spirit falls on him and literally protects David. Now, it's important to understand that that word prophesy um, does not refer here to the foretelling of the future or, or some word from the Lord. Rather, in the Old Testament, prophesy can be used to show that somebody is gripped by an outside spiritual force. In this case, the Spirit of God was preventing Saul and his men from capturing David by putting them in this trance-like state where they were engaging in some ecstatic behavior. They were babbling nonsense, falling on the ground. In fact, the chapter ends with Saul on the ground, stripping off his clothes, people mocking him, a picture of how far he has fallen from God's presence. So chapter 19 shows us that the Lord is with us and we can trust God's, if the Lord is with us, we can trust God's protection. Um, but if I could be a little vulnerable here, that is a hard lesson for me personally uh, because it is so easy to think that the sky is falling. One problem is solved, well, the next one comes up. In fact, my wife is really good at reminding me, Bob, God's in control. Marry yourself a woman who tells you that. It's going to be okay. And I wonder if you struggle with that too. Because in chapter 19, God provides three different escapes through three different people in three different ways. But I got to tell you, David has just got to be getting tired of this drama. And, and we get a window into his heart in, in the Psalms, in chapter 59 of the Psalms. David writes some music about uh, Saul sending assassins to his house. He writes this. He says, Lord, deliver me from my enemies. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. Save me from these bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. They're right outside my bedroom door, God. Fierce men stir up strife against me. Deliver me. Deliver me. Oh, my God. Have you been there? People are against you, even those closest to you. And it's in that moment you got to ask, can I trust God's protective power? 
Because David has learned over and over again that God is a God of deliverance. He saved him from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, the hand of the Philistine. David knows this. This is where the rubber meets the road. And the section here teaches us two principles. First, with God, the sky is not falling. God is sovereignly working his plan even in the midst of chaos. And if you want to be a person of deep influence, you got to believe that. Right? You got to live that because, because if you live that, you are the person who others will run to when their world is falling apart. Christians don't run around like the sky is falling. They trust the power of God. Secondly, choose your friends wisely. In other words, get people around you who believe that first point. Because we need people who trust God even when it gets tough. And it's going to get tough at times. We need a David. We need a Jonathan in our lives. We need friends who will choose God, not the world. And more than that, we need a friend who really knows us. Do you have a friend who really knows you like Jonathan knew David? Do you have a friend who, like this, Cookie Monster tells us this, do you have a friend who will share the last cookie with you? That's the question. Now, I recognize as, as we get older, uh, this gets harder. In fact, there was an article written a number of years ago um, in, in a well-known newspaper that highlighted the scarcity of close friends, especially as you get into midlife and older um, and I wonder if that's something you can relate to, right? During midlife, it's harder to meet the three conditions required for making friends. Uh, what are the three conditions? You've got you to have proximity, you've got to have repeated connections, and, and uh, you've got to have a setting that encourages people to let their guard down and confide in each other. And so the author writes this. He says, in your, in your 30s and 40s and, and beyond, I would say, uh, plenty of new people enter your life through work, through children's play dates, and of course, through social media. But actual close friends, the kind you make in college, right, the kind you can call in a crisis, who would you call in a crisis? Outside your family. Those are in shorter supply. And so as people approach midlife, the days of youthful exploration, when, when life felt like one big blind date, they're fading. Schedules compress, priorities change, and people often become pickier in what they want in friends. No matter how many friends you make, a sense of fatalism can creep in, he says. The period for making BFFs, like David and Jonathan, um, best friends forever, um, the way you did in your teens and your 20s, that's over. And so it's time to resign yourself to situational friends, KOFs, kind of friends, for now. Now, maybe you feel like that. It's hard to make friends, but I would just challenge you right now. Pray for a David. Pray for a Jonathan to come into your life. And again, Jonathan stands out. Jonathan is in between Saul and David. And Jonathan has been trying. He's trying to keep the peace with both David and Saul. And as we get into chapter 20, it's clear that's not possible. What would you do? How would you choose in a situation like this? If you want to be a person who has influence, who doesn't sabotage relationships, you got to be somebody who submits to God's authority. Submit to God's authority. And when you submit to God's authority, that's when you make good choices, even when it seems like everybody's pulling you in different directions. That's what Jonathan models for us in the final chapter. Now, before I read those verses, I, let me just back up and remind us about Jonathan. Jonathan is heir to the throne, and it would be personally advantageous for him to remove David. Um, but he doesn't pursue that ambition. Um, 
and I didn't mention this before, but, but uh, more amazing to me is that Jonathan is a whole lot older than David. It's like David's about 20, and Jonathan's like 35 or 40 at this point. So he actually lays aside his ambitions for a much younger man, which I think speaks to his character. But even so, as we get into chapter 20, there's some tension that comes up. So look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 20. It says, Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? Like he comes to Jonathan in crisis. What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan says to him, Far from it, David, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. And and somehow David's fled Saul. He's got the Jonathan, but he's distraught because Jonathan doesn't seem to be seeing things clearly. He's trying to figure out why Saul has lost his mind And he's distraught because Jonathan amazingly still thinks his father is going to relent. Now, again, if you read this whole narrative, I'm asking myself, listen, there's a couple couple weird things here. Saul is trying to kill David not once but twice, and he's, he's sending assassins. He's chasing after him himself. And still, Jonathan, even though he's been stepping in, Jonathan is willing to believe his father is going to relent. And David says, "Uh uh-uh, why? Why does Jonathan think this? Jonathan has either underestimated Saul's delusion or he has overestimated his own persuasive abilities. And David is getting scared. David is doubting whether he can trust Jonathan. If you put yourself in David's shoes, I mean, I'd be saying, saying, listen, dude, I mean, come on, the spear. Like twice, he threw it at me. Don't you have eyes? David is wondering if Jonathan will submit to God's authority. Look, verse verse 3. It says, David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be... He's not going to tell you everything, Jonathan. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Don't you get how close I am to dying, Jonathan? Then Jonathan says to David, finally gets it, he says, Whatever you say, I will do. So Jonathan assures David of his loyalty and his covenant, and the rest of the chapter is going to test Jonathan. His response will solidify his place of influence in David's life, and and he's going to show us why his eulogy was so special in 2 Samuel 1. Because the truth is, we, we all have choices and opportunities to follow God or not follow God. So David and Jonathan agreed to one final plan. Basically, the next day, there's this new moon festival, which is a two-day festival that occurs at the beginning of the month when the new moon is there. And like the Sabbath, all work is going to cease. All the prominent figures in Israel, like David, are going to go to the palace and celebrate it. And if somebody is not there, it will be noticed. So David and Jonathan plan for David's absence, and Jonathan is going to assess his father's reaction and confirm if he wants to kill David. Now, second, Jonathan then has to communicate what he finds to um, he has to communicate what he finds to David in secret, so nobody sees it. And so they plan to meet in a field. Jonathan is going to take out his bow. He's going to shoot two arrows. He's going to have an apprentice with him, and he's going to say um, to go get his arrows. And if he tells David tells his uh, his apprentice to go get the arrows he shot farthest away, David is going to know that Saul wants to kill him. So. The plan is set, the day is there, and the first day Saul notices David is gone, but he says nothing, but the second day he questions Jonathan, 
And Jonathan says, well, David, um, he asked to go home to Bethlehem uh, for a family matter, and I granted him permission. And Saul's reaction shows the descent of his character and solidifies David's fates. Look at verse 30. It says, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, I do not know that you, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Now, these are seething words here. Out of the overflow of Saul's heart, his mouth speaks. His jealousy has engulfed him, and he's rejecting God's authority. It's evident, and now finally Jonathan sees it. And Saul's speech reveals um, several items. First, that phrase, son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I mean, that's an insult to Jonathan himself, and I got to tell you, the ESV, it tames down the language. It's a lot worse, but he's indicating that he's illegitimate, and What's interesting, I think, is even today, if, if, you're, a, if you're a man, uh, some men, if they're proud of their sons, they will often say, this is my son. But if there's something that there's a disappointment with their son, they'll say, well, he's his mother's child. <laughs> and that's what Saul's doing right here. Now, secondly, the use of the phrase, the son of Jesse, um, Saul can't even use David's name. He's calling him the son of Jesse, which is showing him his disdain for David. That, that he, he's, he's indicating that David, he's not of true royal blood. And then finally, he's telling Jonathan, your kingdom is not going to be established, which is a clear callback to 1 Samuel 15, because Saul knows David is to be king, but he's openly rejecting God's authority. And he's trying to persuade Jonathan to his side, but look at how Jonathan responds. It says, then Jonathan answered his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him. Again, that spear, man. Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fear, not just anger, in fierce anger, and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. And now there's no doubt in Jonathan's mind, Saul has treated him just like he treated David. And his father tried to kill him, and he's going to try to kill David. And he's so deeply affected, his fierce, in his fierce anger, he rises from the table, you know, pushes his chair away. And then he grieves, he, he, he weeps, I think, because his father has put him in this terrible position. Not only has he lost his father, but he's going to lose his friend and his brother. And now Jonathan's tested. He made a promise, but he shows us that if you want to be a person of deep influence, we must be true to our promises. Our yeses must be yes, even if it costs us something. And so with a heavy heart, Jonathan goes out into the field in the morning, he takes his bow, he shoots the arrows, he sends the message, he sends the boy away, and David appears. And what a sad, emotional moment this is. Because if you've ever lost a close friend, you've had somebody leave, move away, pass on, the same emotion is present. Although for David and Jonathan, the ongoing family dynamics and political ambition, they make it worse and so we read this in verse 41. After, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from bedside. 
from beside the, uh, the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord, this is the covenant, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And that's how the narrative section ends. From now on, for years, Saul will relentlessly pursue David. And you've got to ask yourself, how quickly did we get from David and Goliath to right here? Jonathan and David are not going to see each other again except at his funeral. It is a sad story of broken people, this family drama triangle where Saul, Jonathan, and David, they're the centerpiece. And you just got to ask yourself, what does a story like this teach us about being a person of influence and building strong relationships? And so as we wrap up here, I would just ask you to consider each of those characters. Consider Saul and his reaction to David's reign. Are we like Saul? Because he shows us what not to do. Jealousy and ambition and rejection of God's authority, all of this laid the destruction for Saul's kingdom and his family. He's a complicated figure. He shows us the need to embrace our first point, crush jealousy. And then second, consider David. Are you like David? David's on the rise. He's young. At times, he's portrayed as humble, but there's also indications that the fame is starting to go to his head. And then when his life is in danger, he shows us the importance of our second point, trust God's protection. Many of the the Psalms point to that crucial character trait. And then there's Jonathan. Are we like Jonathan? Because Jonathan, I think, comes out the best. He, He cares well for his younger brother. He lays aside his claim to the throne. He seems to put David's interest ahead of his own. He is willing to thirdly submit to God's authority. And it's Jonathan who receives the eulogy at the end. He shows us the person of influence we should be aspired to become, submitting to God's authority. Now the question is, what does that person look like? A person of deep influence, I think as we see in Jonathan, shows us three things. First, we're an advocate. From the beginning of this story, Jonathan advocates for David. In fact, I wonder right now if there's somebody in your life that God is calling you to advocate for. In fact, you might not even know the influence you have in that person's life. Second, this person is faithful. A person of influence who develops deep relationships, they're faithful. They show up. They keep their promises. They're present. They put their personal ambition aside. They are a person who is always there for you consistently over a lifetime. And then finally, they're compassionate. A person of influence who develops deep relationships knows how to weep with you when things go wrong. And, and this, honestly, this is a piece many people miss, um, especially men, Um, Because too often we think about the actions we have taken, the things we have done, and we forget the emotions, right? Validation is important. And Jonathan was a model of all three traits, a picture of where we should aim our arrows. So here's my closing question for you. Is, Is that you? Who are you becoming? Take an inventory this week 
and ask, am I most like Saul or like David or like Jonathan? And then consider your relationships. What type of people do you have in your closest circles? A Saul? A David? A Jonathan? Now, Saul and David both have ambition, but it's Jonathan who models submission. And what's interesting, if you read all of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, David and Saul follow the same arc. They start out strong, but they end up in the same place. And so when the people of Israel shout at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we need a king, it's the kings who rise to power who eventually forget who the true king is. And that should be both a warning and an encouragement to us. Never forget the true king. And in reality, this is the only thing in life that matters, friends. People who follow and surrender their lives to the true king, they are people of influence. We stop being influential when we start following the lesser kings of this world, the lesser kings of fear and jealousy and power and materialism and sex and accomplishments. They capture our hearts. But if we follow the true king, our lives look different. What will people say when you die? The only thing that matters is your relationship with King Jesus. And if your life is surrendered to him, you will develop deep influence. Now, back in chapter 18, we read immediately that Jonathan surrendered his royal robe to David. He gave his loyalty to David. Why? Because he knew who was meant to be king. Moreover, that action at the beginning set the stage for who he would become throughout the narrative. And it also set the stage for how he would be remembered. As the worship team comes on the stage for one final song, um, I just want to mention, I think there's three different kinds of people listening to this message today. Whether you're here, whether you're online, whether you're, you're listening to this later on. First, you might not be a Christian. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're listening. Uh, you might be trying to learn more about the Bible or about Jesus, or maybe somebody dragged you here today. I don't know. Um, the point is, you're under the sound of my voice. A second type of person is somebody who's attended church their whole life, but they haven't surrendered their life to Jesus. And if that's you, we're so happy you're here. I believe God is speaking to you right now. And if you're a third person listening to this message, you might be a committed Christian. You, you, you are seeking to follow Jesus with your whole heart, your mind, your strength. You want to be a person of influence for him. Praise God. I am so glad you're here. But before I pray, I just want to I want to point out something to each group. The most important lesson from this message is the same for every group. Like Jonathan surrendered his robe to David, the true king, Jesus Christ, is calling each of us, no matter where you are, to surrender your royal robe to him. He wants our allegiance over any ambition we have. He gave his life for you and for me came down from heaven to earth so that you could be free to follow him. He is the true king. And at the end of life, when people are asking questions, nothing else matters. Submitting to his authority may be something you're resisting right now, but if you want to live out your true calling and purpose, you must give your life to the true king. And when you do, when you bring your life under his rule and his reign, his power will be with you. His love will flow from you, and his glory will shine through you. Will you surrender your life today? 
it will change who you become. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the narratives of the Old Testament that they they teach us that um, you work through broken people. People make mistakes. People make bad choices, Lord. And yet you're calling us, even today, Lord, to give you the praise, to recognize that you are the true king. You're calling us to give whatever royal robes we think we're wearing to you and lay them at the foot of the cross. And so I pray for my friends today, Lord God, that they would come to that place, that they would give their lives to you, all of their lives, even the the places of our hearts that we're holding on to, Lord, whatever power and influence we think we have, like Saul. Help us give all of ourselves to you, Lord, that you may get the praise, the honor, the glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.